James chapter 1, we are taking our sweet time going through the first chapter of James because he's got a knack for cramming a lot into a little bit of space, and it doesn't do us any good to gloss over all of it. So we are trying to move slowly. In light of our joy in Christ, our need to see the world through him, in light of sanctification by the Holy Spirit, and our need for wisdom, how do I view life? How do I understand what is going on and see what is in the world around me to make sense of it? Welcome to this section, verses 9 through 11. We have um, a little bit of background information that will be helpful. In Jerusalem, because remember, James is writing to a church that is really for the first time facing widespread persecution. So, not this James, brother of Jesus, but James, brother of John, has been beheaded by Herod. Peter has been arrested and set free by an angel. So, we are seeing widespread persecution. People are dying. People are being locked up. But beyond that, where did all of the people at Pentecost come from? more than the surrounding areas. They were from literally all over. Um, one, of the, one of the oddities of Old Testament history is 586, Babylonians come in, destroy the temple, scatter uh, Israel to the winds, basically. They become what is known as the diaspora, the dispersion. They would set up synagogues in their towns. Uh, what was it? Um, Lou, help me out. Ten men, right? Yeah, ten men, ten men for, yeah, Lou, Lou is my go-to on remembering this stuff. <laughs> it's like having an extra brain, you know, makes you know, a, little bit, a, little, a little bit more download space, you know, like when you plug a hard drive into your computer, get to the luxury room. So anytime you could get ten Jewish men together, you would have a synagogue. You would get not quite the work that you would get at the temple of the sacrifices and the offerings, but you would get the teaching work that would have been done by the priests around Israel. Because remember, the priests don't get a portion of the land, they get cities and everybody else's portion, so that instruction would be accomplished so that um, the teaching of the, of the scriptures would be magnified and spread all out. Israel did this in exile. Well, when Zerubbabel and the crew come back in, what, five, uh, 539, you get the decree of Cyrus, and then you get really returning bands of Jews for the next 75 years, basically. Many of them just never came home. They stayed in exile. They stayed in the dispersion. So the synagogue system was alive and thriving for centuries. Well, if you're receiving faithful testimony, you're receiving everything you're supposed to, what do you know about being a faithful Israelite three times a year? There's your big hint. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to show back up in Jerusalem for the festivals. Many would. This is who Peter is speaking to at Pentecost. It is the exiled faithful that have returned for the festival. Now, here's the fun part. Holy Spirit comes. Thousands are added to the church. A few days later, Peter's preaching again. What happens? Thousands more are added to the church. What did these people do? They believed, but then what? See, a lot of them never went home. They stayed because this is the new church. This is why the Jerusalem church is so prominent in Paul's ministry. As Paul's traveling around, he's forever taking up an offering for who? Jerusalem. Why? Because all of these people that came are not leaving. 
This is the church in their mind. This is ground zero. This is the home of the faithful. The Holy Spirit has changed us. We have been girded. We are staying right here. So in Jerusalem, you had a menagerie of people. You had people that had left everything and are now amongst the poor of Jerusalem. But the gospel is still doing what? It is still being proclaimed. Number are still being added too. So you have poor, and then being added to that, you have what? You have officials. You have government people. You have temple higher-ups. These people have means. How do you put these people together and function in a church? You ready for your simple answer? Does God care where you came from? Does he care who you were? No. Does he care what you have done? He cares what? Where are you going? How will you get there? And what is the reason you're traveling? James is going to expound on that. So all of that to say, James builds on that as he, as he begins to get into the meat of this letter. So you ready to dive in? All right. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. All right, a brother of humble circumstances. So someone who is not the best of the best of the world, someone who would be considered lowly by society. Why should I glory when I am low? Let's stop and think for a second. And I will help you out because this is a recurring theme for the book of James. It is wisdom in action. Proverbs chapter 30. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, teach me to do what? To trust and rest in who you are and what you have given me. So when I have next to nothing, what should I be doing? Being thankful that God has provided what he has given. Jesus expounded on this, Matthew 10, or Matthew 10, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now let's stop for a second. The world looking at you would say you have what? Nothing. Nothing by the world's standards. So what is this high position you are to glory in? 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father who has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So what's your high position, Christian, according to John? You are a child of God, redeemed cleansed, being sanctified, and preserved unto the day of eternity. Peter builds on this, 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what were you? You were nothing. Scattered to the winds of the world, but now what are you? The people of God. Clean, holy, righteous, persevering in all that he has done. Paul, same idea, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In other words, everything that was broken in you is repaired in Christ. Everything that was outside the wall has now been cleansed and brought in. You are a child of God because of the work of God, redeemed, cleansed, holy, and righteous. Let's stop for a second. How do you feel? Do you feel like that most days? Nope. Do I have to say it again? What am I going to say next? Do I care how you feel? I care what? What you know, because this, this is the breakdown of the modern world. Well, one of the breakdowns of the modern world. I better not say that this is it, because there, we could probably make a list and we'd be here all morning. But one of the great breakdowns is that we have denigrated knowledge and objective truth and replaced it with, how do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Yeah. Do you know what level of tyranny that is? If you have ever been or ever lived with someone who has um, any kind of bipolar disorder, do you have any idea the tyranny that that creates? You can't function in that world with any certainty. It's almost like the enemy looked at the universe and said, I wonder how we can twist the security of the wisdom of God. Oh, I've got it. Did God really say? Should we be guarded by knowledge and guided by wisdom? Or maybe we should just make sure everybody feels good. For those of you that were around during the 60s and 70s, you have exactly, know exactly what the counterculture movement was all about. This is the lie. This is the problem. What the Christian is supposed to do and what the Holy Spirit is endeavoring with all of those smacks in the back of your head to keep you faithful and on the right track is to not worry about what your feelings tell you to do, but to be grounded by what you know and then let that influence how you feel. So let's recap this. What is your high position, Christian? That you are a child of God. Blessed. Redeemed cleansed, holy and righteous. What was broken has been repaired. What was cast out has been invited in. And by his mercy and his grace, nothing will overcome that place. Now, with your heart, mind, and soul reminded of the truth of the gospel work, how do you feel? See, knowledge guiding feelings. This is why we, I mentioned, um, oh, it's been weeks now, but it's a good recap. The, um, the Robert Murray McShane quote, for every look at yourself, do what? Anybody remember? Take 10 looks at Christ. Because the lie of the world, the accusations of the enemy are, you're no good. 
You're broken down. You're defeated. You can't do this because you're looking at who? You. Now look at Christ and who are we? There it is. Now, why should I do this other than the Bible said so? <laughs> See, always, is that ever the right answer? No. No, it is never the right answer. Whereas always, I don't care what you do, I care what. Why you do it. I don't want you to play the game. I want you to actually understand what the walk is about and why you're doing it. So, James has not pulled this idea out of thin air. Luke 14, Jesus told his disciples, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, I can glory in the position that God has me because who has put me there? God has. And I don't have to worry about where I am because I know where I am going. The early church modeled this beautifully, Acts chapter 5. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John have been arrested. Um, Gamaliel has given the advice that we probably shouldn't, you know, be killing these guys. Let's just see what happens. So they get beaten. Doesn't that sound like a good day? We'll just have you whipped. It'll be all right. So they went out on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. How'd you feel? I mean... The councils brought you in, you've argued with them, you didn't change their mind, they didn't change your mind, they got a whip and beat you for a little bit. And you walked out in a good mood. Why? Because we bear, we, we, we bear up under struggle. We were able to stand tall. Why did we do that? Because the Holy Spirit didn't forsake us and he strengthened us. Why would he give us this trial and temptation? Because he knew he would strengthen us to overcome, which means we're on the right track. We're going the right way, as opposed to going the wrong way. How do they know where we're going? Sorry. Every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. More than that, Christian. So Jesus told you to. The early church showed you how this should be done. This is what the gospel demands of you in your walk. This is what sanctification looks like. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and all that that entails. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Pilgrim's Progress gives a great explanation of that verse. Um, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a couple of movies on it. Go watch it. It's good for you. Um, but I would actually encourage you to read it. Get an abridged version. It's nicely translated. It does an excellent job of, of, it's an allegory of the Christian life. I told you this before. Uh, Christian is redeemed. He has his burden removed. And he is on the king's highway, uh, ascending to the celestial city. And as he goes along the way, one of the groups that he meets is, he, he meets a couple of fellow travelers who have not come through the wicket gate where their burden has been removed, but they've climbed over the wall and gotten on the road another way. When struggles and temptations come, guess what they do? They get off the highway and go a different direction, whereas Christian stays on the path. That's what Romans is talking about. It says, we, if we indeed suffer with him. Why are Peter and John rejoicing that they've been beaten? Because they were faithful. There was nothing shaking them. There was nothing undermining the truth of the gospel and the walk that they were undertaking, which means they're in. 
They're secure. This, this is why, I've, I've joked about this before. Why doesn't Satan just like show up in your bedroom one evening at like 10 o'clock, like, you know, pitchfork and horns and red leotard and be like, eh, follow me. One, you would laugh hysterically. Well, yeah, but not only would you not go with him, how much doubt would you have? It'd be gone. But it'd be, think about this. What's the, what's the lie of the world? Are you sure? Are you positive? How do you know? If that actually happened for you, what would you know? <gasps> There's, he's there right there, and he tried to get me, and he didn't get me. I mean, I now know that I know that I know. It would remove any possibility that I ever could doubt ever again, which is why he doesn't do it. Because the, the, the challenge and the trick is, did God really say? Did he actually promise? Are you sure? It's subtle little twists and contortions. And Peter and John are looking at this going, yes. Yes, he said. Yes, we're certain. Yes, we know. How do we know? Because when push came to shove, what did we do? We were there. The anchor held. We were not blown about. We were not cast aside. We were solid. Paul puts it another way to the Colossians. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Now, all of that stuff applies whether God has gotten to you or the world has gotten to you yet. In other words, this is what we are to do and this is how we are to walk. If the world considers us garbage, we say what? We're happy garbage because we are joy-filled garbage because this garbage is cleansed of God. Therefore, I don't care what they think. I have the approval and the sanctification and the grounding from God. Therefore, the world doesn't matter in their opinions. It doesn't matter what they think or what they feel like or how they think it should run. I know what God has proclaimed, and I stand there. But there's another side of this coin, isn't there? Verse 10. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Huh. So you have everything according to the world's standard. And James calls that humiliation. <laughs> so he too is lowly, isn't he? Because he's being humiliated day by day. So Christian, why should I glory when I am in a low position? It's wisdom and action. Proverbs 30. Two things I've asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And that I not be in want and steal and profane in the name of my God. See, that wisdom is necessary and this correction is necessary because the temptation is to align with the world. I've used this analogy before. Paul uses this analogy when he talks about the, the, the uh, faithful Bible teacher cutting the word straight. Um, how, how does he phrase it in the, in the modern translation? be rightly dividing the word of truth. It's in Timothy. Read Timothy. It'll do you good. Um, what did Paul do for money when he traveled around? Tent maker. It's, it's a... It's a um, Seamstress analogy. What's the male version of a seamstress? Taylor, thank you. 
See, the words sometimes they rattle around and I can't grab them. It's like children chasing fireflies and they don't go away. I mean, Paul's making tents. This is an important concept. Imagine how much work you're, imagine how much fabric you're working on if you're making a tent. You've got to do what with those scissors or knife or whatever you're using? Because what happens if I start here and I'm cutting 30 feet of material and I'm off by a quarter inch? What happens 30 feet from now? <laughs> we're way over there. I mean, you were all taught this when you got a driver's license. What are you told to do when you got your driver's license? Where do you look? You look out. And what does every beginning driver do? They look right over the nose of the car, and every passenger is green after four miles. Because when you look right over the nose of the car, how do you drive? And every passenger is sitting there going, okay, roll down the window. I need a minute. (laughs) Because if you just try to look right over the nose, you can't make the corrections you need to make. You can't see what's coming, and it's... You do the same thing in the Christian walk. You do the same thing in the Christian life. If you, the temptation of the world is that if we look down and we get focused on us because we're so amazing and awesome and wonderful, you know, what are we now no longer doing? We're no longer seeing the forest for the trees. We are now paying attention to ourselves. The, uh, the, the phrase I grew up with is we're navel gazing, not looking at boats out in the ocean, but looking at your belly button. How far are you going to get walking like this? You ever, you ever see teenagers when they go through that insecure phase and they start walking around like that? I mean, before, the, before cell phones, they probably don't do this anymore. But you remember, you remember the really, really insecure kid in your middle school class? How did they walk everywhere? And if you were their parent, you're telling them, look up, you're going to run into things. You can't live like that. This is what the world attempts to get you to do, is to look down, to pay attention to the things that are here, to look at the things that the world is going after and no longer be focused on eternity in Christ, to be focused on the things of this place. Because if you do that, what's going to happen to my long-term walk? Am I going to go in that right direction? No, because I'll make slight little changes. I won't see the big picture and I will be lost. Hence the reason the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Riches in the world are not a sign of good things in the heart, mind, or soul. This is one of those things that the ancient world would have really gotten wrong. This is one of the reasons why Job is the way that it is. Because everybody assumed that Job, because you had all these things, you were good. Well, since God has taken all of these things, you must now be bad. (laughs) Because otherwise, why would God have done this to you? This was why the teaching from Jesus about the rich man was so important. Well, they must be blessed of God. Look how much stuff they have. To tell me that it's hard for them to get into the kingdom of heaven is to undo everything I think about the world. Having an easy go of the world here is not a sign that you have been blessed of God. It's actually a sign that you are not being disciplined by God. Who was your favorite teacher from high school? The one who let you play games all day? I mean, when you were in the class, that was your favorite. But I mean, as an adult, looking back, who was your favorite teacher? The one who actually demanded things. The one who actually had expectations, standards that you were supposed to aspire to. Why? Because looking back in hindsight, that teacher actually cared. The one who just let you goof off all day and never required anything of you didn't care. 
So a God that just sends you out into the world to walk willy-nilly, gives you every good thing, never requires anything of you, and never challenges you in any shape, form, or fashion, what is that basically telling you? He didn't care. And it, or he cares so much that he knows you can't stand up under any trial because your faith is tiny. That's why Peter and John could rejoice because we were counted worthy of suffering for the name. We were strong enough because of the work of the Holy Spirit and we can stand up against anything. Having blessings in this world, having an easy ride, the road being smoothly paved with no potholes, you know, the opposite of what the Illinois DOT accomplishes. Giving you all of that wonderfulness is just a way of saying you can't handle difficulty and struggles. That, from the Christian perspective, is a humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Let me rephrase that into modern American. You can't take it with you. There's never been a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? <laughs> Although I have seen a picture of a wood chipper behind a hearse, and I'm not sure I wanted to go to that funeral. Because, <laughs> I mean, there's burial cremation. I didn't know there was a box for other, and I'm not sure I want to. But you can't. Why not? Because it's not about that. It's about worship and service rendered unto God with an eternal focus in mind. Riches are not a protection against the world. John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I've told you this before. You should have more in common with a Christian in Asia than you do with the unbeliever down the street. Why? Because if you don't, then your commonalities and your walk is more determined by the culture and the world around you than it is, than it is by the exclusivity and difference that Christ makes in your life. This becomes the difficulty of the modern world. What do we look like most of the time? We look like the world. Now look, you have to evaluate your life. I have to evaluate my life. If I'm not talking about you, then I'm not talking about you. Evaluate for yourself. But who do you need to be honest with? Yeah, you look in the mirror and you see that person staring back at you. Be honest with who you're talking to. And then look where? Look to Christ and recognize that for that too, he is cleansed. For that too, he is cleaned. And that too, he is working to put to death in your life day by day. And then get on board and walk faithfully with a new heart, new mind, and new focus. Because everything we strive for here is what? Let's use a biblical description. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And it is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which they have, did, which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. I love that description. Ecclesiastes might be my favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> I quote it probably more than anything else because I'm forever reminding you what? There is nothing new under the sun. I mean, how many other books of the Bible got to be uh, top 10 rock hits? I'm not even, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. It, it charted. There is a season turn. That's, they, they act, the, um, 
the people who wrote that song were actually Jewish, and they cut a portion of their proceeds to uh, Jewish charities because they flat out said, we ripped off Ecclesiastes for this song. <laughs> and they did. They ripped off Ecclesiastes 3. But that's a great description. All is vanity and striving after the wind. You know what you need to do this week? Go be a child for five minutes. It's Illinois. It's winter. You know what we're going to have some of this week? Wind! It's going to blow at some point. You know what you need to go do? Go out in the yard and catch it. I'm serious. You should. It, is a, it will be a good reminder for you. Go catch the wind. And how's that going to work out for you? Welcome to chasing after the world, the things of the world. Because for everything we accumulate, what have we accomplished? Nothing. In the grand scheme of things. Nothing. And that's the warning. Jesus told you, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. You cannot be devoted to the one, I'm sorry, he will, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. If you care about the opinion of the world, and you care about the things that the world deems to be successful and wonderful, you cannot be focused on eternity. You cannot be focused on the things that actually matter. Likewise, if you are focused on eternity and focused on the place where Christ is seated, then you will not be caught up in the things of this world. Now, once again, we do all things unto the glory of God, right? All things, not some things, all things. So did I tell you to not care about your job? didn't say that. Did I tell you to not care about anything that happens in the world? didn't say that either. I told you to make sure they are placed in their proper perspective. Gotta love Baptist alliteration on a Sunday morning. I don't do it often, but when I get it right, it's, you know, it's... <laughs> I gotta give myself a couple headlet stickers every once in a while. So what I mean is, seek out your idols. Go to work. Do a good job. That is the provision that God has granted you. See, in the ancient world, what was your provision? Your field, your herds, your flocks. So you cared for them. You took good care of them. You managed them well as, you, as an offering unto the Lord. And as a result of that, you took care of them well. God took care of you, and you ate. How many of you have fields that you eat out of? I don't mean a garden. I mean actual fields. Because even you don't. You farm. Well, you farmed. <laughs> <laughs> past tense, past tense for you, for you old retired codgers telling people to get off their lawn. <laughs> but you didn't go harvest and then thresh your grain and then make your bread. You did it for a price. A little, but, not, but I mean, not in total. Our modern world is set up differently. Why do you eat? Because you had a job that paid you in money that you exchanged for goods so that you don't starve to death. So their field is your job. Work it unto the Lord. Those relationships have been provided by God. Care for them as unto the Lord. Knowing that they are not the end-all, be-all, but they are the tools that demonstrate a redeemed heart and a sanctified spirit. In other words, be wary of the world and be careful how you walk. The days are evil, the time is short, and we are offering all of ourselves, no matter what they think, no matter what they offer, because our focus is eternity. 
So do a good job. Provide well. Care about what goes on around you. But do not ever allow it to replace Christ upon his throne. Do not ever allow it to be the center point of your life. And the minute it does, I mean, I've talked to you guys about this before. I don't watch the news in the morning. I don't really watch the news ever at all. I have a couple of places that I get information to find out what's going on in the world. You know, I want to I at least know when North Korea launches the nuke that it's going to wipe us all off the map. So at least be able to, you know, hunker under the bed or something like it's going to matter. But I don't watch the news. Why? One, it's depressing. But two, I get caught up in it. It's not good for me to get caught up in it. So you know what I do? I let it go. Because I can't live like that. Because I cannot allow current events and my knowledge of what goes on in the world to be my God. It makes a lousy deity and it will crush my heart, soul, and mind. Instead, I know what's going on so that I can be somewhat informed, so I can participate in our uh, Republican process, I can vote fairly well in a fairly informed manner, and be a decent citizen because that's what God has called me to be. Not because that's what excites me and that's what it has a, I know what's going on, woo. No. But I live and work as an offering unto God. I do the same thing with my family. I do the same thing with my work. I do the same thing with relationships because I have a focus on eternity, not a focus on the here and now. Keep priorities in, straight, in, in check. Keep everything straight. So, rich man, what would this look like from a gospel demand? Because Jesus warned you, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in. The early church modeled this. You can see things like 1 John 2. John's warning you, what's the world going to do? It's going to hate you because you're not of the world, but the world is what? Passing away. Philippians 3, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything Paul built his life around. When, when given the choice between all that my life has been for, my time as a Pharisee, my, my knowledge, my advancing in social skills, my advancing in the social structure, I have all of those things on one side and I have Christ. That scale looks kind of like this in the world can... All of those things are lost, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This is what the gospel demands of both rich and poor alike. 2 Corinthians 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is why I tell you, every look at yourself, ten looks at Christ. Why? Because when you look at yourself, there's the accusation. There's the lie. There's the concern. You're no good. You've done this. You've lied. You've stolen. You've cheated. You've done all of these things. And the temptation is, mm -hmm. but when I look upon Christ, what am I reminded of? That yes, I'm no good. I've lied. I've stolen. I've cheated. I have done all of these things. And he has redeemed even me. 
Weakness turned to strength. Rejection turned to acceptance. Shame turned to glory. Because in him I am cleansed. In him I am righteous. In him all of those things were. And none of them are. That's why it matters where you look. Verse 11. For the sun rises with scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. That was pleasant, wasn't it? I mean, didn't that just sound all happy and go lucky? Don't you just feel, isn't that what good poetry is supposed to be, is all the flowers dying in the wind? What here is permanent? Oh, it's not nothing. What here is permanent? Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. And when the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. All right, let's challenge you a little bit. How many of you know the name of your grandparents? How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? How about your great-great-grandparents? (laughs) How many of you know where your family lived in 1740? (laughs) We have one person, I know you're into genealogies. That's the only reason. Notice how quickly we lost hands. We start losing hands, real, I mean, great-grandparents in most families. By the time you get to great-great-grandparents, I've told you this before, but it's just just too perfect not to. when I was a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Stoneville, North Carolina, um, lived next door to the church. I used to walk to my office every day on this brick walkway underneath a little bell tower. And at some point, the church had taken on to this fundraising thing, and they had, you could buy a brick for the walkway with your family's name on it. And I, it was, was, was it $50 to do a brick? And so what, what they had done was they had pooled money together, and they had every, um, every pastor of the church had a brick with his name and the years that he had passed to the church. Now, the frightening thing is the church has been in existence since like 1901, and in 2015, they had like 20 pastors. <laughs> I mean, they were just, <laughs> they churn them out like, you know, nothing else. But I've told you before, my favorite pastor of that church was the pastor of the church from 1902 to 1904, Reverend Davis. I had a copy of the church history, Reverend Davis, 1902 to 1904. Went, um, we had a, a 90-year-old lady in the congregation who was into that sort of thing, like could tell you where her family lived in 1742 type of thing. Did Reverend Davis have a name? Could be, what's the answer to that? Well, yes, the man had a name at some point. What was Reverend Davis's name? Nobody knows. In the church history, he's Reverend Davis. On the brick, he is... Reverend Davis, and that's all he is until the end of time. And I love that. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. You know why? Because if Reverend Davis was doing what he was doing at that church from 1902 to 1904 so that they would remember his name and people would love him, love him, he was an utter failure. But if he was doing that work from 1902 to 1904 so that he could render it as an offering unto God to disciple people, to build up the kingdom with his eyes focused on eternity, then he is my favorite person on the planet. 
Because it doesn't matter if I know who he is. It matters if God does. Because there's coming a day when none of you will be known by anyone. Not here. Your great-great-grandchildren will look at pictures of you one day and go, who is that? You know, like you do every time somebody dies in your family, and they all drag out the old photos, and you start looking around, and, and half the pictures get, you get old enough, and half the pictures are like, nobody knows who it is, and like maybe one person. That'll be us. And if that's what you've lived your life for, then you've completely failed. But if God knows who we are, if we stand in his presence and our name is known, then we are a success. We have been redeemed and we stand not just then, but we stand for eternity. That's the hope. The sun rises with scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Because nothing here can last. I don't mean not most things here can last. Nothing here can last. There's going to come a day when there won't even be cockroaches and Twinkies. You know that joke, right? After the nuclear war, what's going to be left? Cockroaches and Twinkies. Now, there's coming a day when even the roaches and the Twinkies will be gone. There will be nothing to remember or be a symbol of who we were and what mattered. The goal is not to be remembered here. The goal is to be remembered before the throne of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid in Jesus Christ. See, if we try to build our lives on anything else, it will be destroyed. It will be torn down. It will be cast aside. There is nothing here that is eternal outside of the work of God. This is why I tell you, your work, your family, your relationships, an offering unto God. Your faithfulness will be determined on his standard, not the words. Proverbs 27, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. I mean, think about this. How many richest men in the world have there been? <laughs> I have no idea. But in every generation, there's been somebody had, oh, excuse me. There's been somebody who had more stuff than everybody else. Do you know who they were? <laughs> I mean, wasn't that the whole point of the Tower of Babel? So that we not be scattered so that our names be remembered forever. Who built it? <laughs> what were their names? What did they do? I don't know. I don't care because they're not God. And none of the work that is here is going to last. Second Peter 3 points you in the right direction. Beloved, knowing beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Simple things in Scripture that we know and that we overlook. How many ways are there to God? One. And what is that one way? Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into God but through me. 
The work of discipleship and sanctification is a work built upon that one way. I know we know that, but we don't think about that, and we don't think in those terms regularly, regardless of where we've come from regardless of who we were, regardless of anything that we have done, we all stand in Christ. We all succeed in Christ. I mean, if you want a great example of this, Peter. Peter was rejoicing because he was found worthy to suffer. If there was one guy in the Gospels that you would not have picked to be the one who would stand faithfully, who would you have put your money on? I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's betting time, right? If you had to bet on an apostle who's not going to stand firm when the rubber meets the road, who are you putting your money on? You're putting your, you're putting your, let's be honest. Most of you are like, okay, it's a good bet to put our money on Peter. Because if ever a dude who's going to wilt when the pressure is on or say something dumb when given the opportunity to speak, it's going to be who? It's going to be Peter. And yet, who's the guy who stands at Pentecost? Who's the guy that proclaims before the Sanhedrin? Who's the guy that carries the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time? Peter. One of the people that stands at the Jerusalem Council to defend the simplicity of the gospel. Peter. It's almost like God goes out of his way to use the biggest mess up to accomplish the greatest work. Because who are we in Christ? Not where we were, not what we were, not what we've done but clean in him. How does Paul put it? Behold, new things have come. Cleansed and righteous in him, which is why forever you look at your... Now, why? Philippians 4. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Never forget the lesson of James. Remember, we talked about this when we made sure we knew who James was brother of Jesus. Believer from the very beginning, right? No. In other words, someone who recognized that there was a time when I was out, and now there is a time that I am in. Why? Because the work of God works. The work that God is doing actually accomplishes things in real time. What James is calling you to here is a reminder that don't look at this world. And the world he's pointing his people to look away from is a broken one. It's a persecuting one. It is one that is hating them and ratcheting that up as fast as it can. And he's saying, that doesn't matter. Because all that sin has been cast away in Christ if it was ours. And all of their sin will either be dealt with with Christ or it'll be dealt with in eternity. Instead, we rest on the work that God has done because it changes not just our future, but it changes our now. It changes who we are, how we walk, because it changes how we think, because it changes literally who we are, and we can rest in the work that he has done, and we can hope in the promises that he has provided, because his work that he has promised worked. It accomplished things. His work that he is doing works. It accomplishes things, which means the work that he is doing will work. It will accomplish things, because it's not based on us. It is based upon Christ and Christ alone. That should be our focus. That should 
That should be where we rest each and every day. Let's pray.